Hello, I'm Boyan Fürst. And I'm Rebecca Cahoe, and you're listening to Rural Roots. A Harris Center show that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? Today, we're pleased to have our volunteer producer, Rebecca Nolan, here with us again. It's great to be back with another story to share with you guys. Yeah, and it's an interesting one. Today, we're going to explore the opportunities in, and probably challenges too, in rural areas that we're going to see once the legalization of marijuana kicks in. Or should I say, once it gets rolling. Oh, no, I knew this was going to happen. Um, I wrote this script without any puns. Yeah, so pun-free zone from now on. (laughs) No, 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 puns are fine. Uh, And actually, we have a couple of interviews where people quite liberally use them. So, we are going to start with the most logical place in this country, and that's BC. Then we're going to go talk to somebody in Halifax. And uh, thanks to Rebecca Nolan, we are going to end up in our own backyard here in Newfoundland Labrador. Great. Sounds like a plan. So who is it that you talked to in BC? So we were at the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation Conference in Nelson, BC in September this year. And uh, we kept hearing these wild stories about the marijuana economy in Nelson. Yeah, and we actually heard from more than one person that estimates are as high as one-third of the economy in that region being related to the marijuana industry, and it's not entirely legal. Yeah, and people would say one-third for sure, if not a half. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. So um, with imminent legalization, we also kept hearing about many concerns, people Um, who have been growing and selling for decades, had about the whole process. Um, So we asked around, and we were told that the person we wanted to talk to is Todd Berry. And he actually wasn't that easy to get to. No, but it was worth the trip. (laughs) So he lives near Caslo on a mountain road with a pretty limited cell phone signal on a pretty isolated but beautiful farm right in the mountains there were goats cows dogs apple trees it was perfect so now what the thing that you need to know is that marijuana probably brings more than 100 million dollars to the region Um, and it has been a fixture in the Kootenays for a long time and in fact the area has been pretty well known for it Todd actually moved from Ontario more than 20 years ago and the small growing operations uh, were all over the place But with the legalization process well on its way, he's wondering what's going to happen when when all the big changes come in. At that time, so many people were involved in a little bit in a small market. You know, we didn't never had gangs, we never had guns. It was all mom and pops. And everybody made a little bit extra money. There was all sorts of professional people doing a little bit on the side and making a little bit of money. We padded our our lifestyle and that's really what I envision with the co-op I see even though the money's been here for all these years it's still been accumulated in a small number of people that are you know the at the top I see this as much more of a democratization of the the industry of the wealth to 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 spread it out and 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 keep the knowledge here, we have the knowledge, we have the workforce, we have the climate, we have the underutilized farms. These are all things that come together in, in, our, in our idea. And uh, 
so I think we can build that. I think we can make even weed tourism, which no one is, is talking about yet. This is going to be way bigger than the weed industry itself. I think well, I, what I would like to see in five or ten years is the Kootenays having 50 or 60 farms that, are, that have weed tourism as big as here as wine tourism is in the Okanagan. Why not? There's no reason why we can't do that. So as you can imagine, he was super excited when he saw the government report that would allow that vision he has to come true, especially because it called for the growers to grow the plants outdoors. So Todd has spent quite a bit of time thinking about what this future could look like, but in doing so, he's realized that it's probably a fairly complicated endeavor. Um, so we're going to play a longer clip here now uh, that will explain a lot about growing marijuana and how it's worked in the past, just to give us a bit of context. I read the, the report that, uh, that came out and I was fascinated. It kept saying over and over, small and medium-sized producers and outdoor on farms. Or I don't know if it said farms, but it specifically said outdoor. And I went, outdoor? Hmm. And so I, you see where I live, and I look out over this field. And in February, we had a brutal winter here. We still had four feet of snow. We could just, snow was here on the whole farm. And, and I look out, and I see this field here in the center that I have some blueberries in that aren't doing very well. And... And, hmm, what would it take for me to grow on the farm? Yeah. They're saying I can do it. What's stopping me? I got really excited. <laughs> and I said, okay, what if I grow a, a, a hectare? Because it's a unit. It's a, <laughs> and, and also most of my fields are 300 feet and from, from, from divide. And so a hectare is like 300 feet by 300 feet. So I went, okay, hectare. What's, 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 how could I grow a hectare? A lot of people have grown a lot of marijuana in the Kootenays for a long time, but it's been on mountains, and they've been hiding it from view, and it's not been in full sun. It's been out of, of the height. So the first question is, how f far do I space them? And I went, mm -hmm. I don't know. So how tall does it get? What are you going to do? Especially the, there's a few varieties that have been used here over time that are very... Uh, conducive to our climate and, and, and are mold resistant and, and they grow for a long time. You plant them in May and you don't harvest until end of, Octo end of October. Uh, so they're right now if they could be 14, 15 feet tall by now. So that could be a problem staking. It could be tens of thousands of stakes. So I came up with about 4,000 to 5,000 plants per hectare. Mm. I went, oh, that's a lot of plants. With marijuana, you can't plant by seed and just let it grow because you'll have males and they'll pollinate the females and you'll have all seed instead of flour, which is what we smoke. And I went, so you got to clone five, four, five thousand plants. Boy, that's, that's expensive. That's what I really thought in my head. I got the farm, but the farm drained all my money, so I don't have much money left. So now I, I don't have... I don't have the money to put up that. We're getting back into this, I mean, a million dollars. And then what am I going to, to, to do? And so, and also the, not just the clones, but then the, the growing of the plant is easy. Once it's growing, it's growing. Feed it water and light and fertilizer and does great. Then you've got to harvest it. The, the harvesting of the plant to get it ready for smoking, that's it's very labor intensive. You know, there's traditionally 
thousands of people come into the Kootenays. Well, not much in the last 10 years because it's not much outdoor anymore and they went to trimming machines and stuff, but it used to be all hand trimmed and there was thousands of people that would come in. There were like transient hippies, a lot of them. People, well, people that would live here for the summer, maybe they're not coming from far away. They have roots here. They stay here for the summer. They work for a couple months. They make ten or fifteen, twenty thousand dollars trimming, and then they go to Asia, mm. Thailand, India, and travel around. Come back next summer, complete the cycle, and, and that's what people were doing year in, year out here, and 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 it had quite the industry. So there we go. A short history of uh, marijuana growing in southeastern BC. I want to talk to those transient hippies. I know we didn't <laughs> we didn't run into any transient hippies when it's we were so there. disappointing. They I were all they them. were settled hippies. <laughs> <laughs> but as he realized how expensive and difficult this is all going to get, he came up with the obvious idea: if you are in the Kootenays, um, because it's already quite popular in the region across industries. Once I had the idea, then I got excited, and then the reality of how much was needed set in, and, and it just happened that our MP the next week had a town hall phone-in um, three-hour thing where you could ask questions, and so I was very interested to ask questions about the production side, and I got my question in there was already waited, waited. They never got to me, and they, but they kept getting to the same thing over and over, and it was we support legalization. It's run our economy for so long. We don't want the Kootenays left out. And it was in that, during that phone town hall that I, I went, I wrote down co-op on my piece of paper. Co-ops are big here in the Kootenays. And it just made sense. It made sense that everything sort of fell into place when I came at it from that point of view. Yeah, and co-ops are astonishingly popular in the region. We visited a forestry co-op when we were there, food co-ops. There are co-ops for all kinds of different products in the area. And the great thing about a co-op is that it provides a structure for people who maybe are already growing to do so legally um, and also allows new growers the opportunity to join. So there's one problem, though. Right now, growing marijuana is still illegal, right? Right. And the idea is... Uh, basically, to have uh, the co-op hold a license on 12 farms where each will grow about a hectare of organic outdoor marijuana. The, there'll be a central facility somewhere in the Kootenays where we will grow the plant production, the clones, the transplants mm -hmm. out. They'll be taken to the farm, planted, they'll be two growers on with at each farm for the summer they'll be grown up the plants will be harvested in the fall and they'll be taken back to the central facility to be hand trimmed and processed and sold from there so it's uh, only on the farm from mid-may to mid-october so it sounds like he has this all really worked out he does uh and what he thinks is really important about the co-op is that it can also provide resources and education so that potential growers are able to be successful. The co-op is going to supply the, the, the knowledge, the, the manpower, the information, and then they will grow that and teach that out. 
as well. I think, I think consulting could be a big thing for us because if you were a, a farmer and wanted to grow a few hectares on your, on your own, um, there's some, there's some bits and pieces that are difficult that you'd probably want to learn first. So when he got this idea, he, as you would, went on social media and kind of put out a call for a little meeting of people interested in starting up marijuana growing co-op. And he thought, I'll get 25, 30 people, right? Then local media picked up his little Facebook post and suddenly he had 120 people. And today he has a mailing list of over 150 people that he is now trying to organize. It's really amazing, and it just shows that other people are buying into his vision as well. He believes that a co-op that's growing outdoor, organic, recreational marijuana would be a great opportunity for the region, and that it could actually work to change the stereotypes that are out there about, you know, marijuana growers. Um, so now he's pretty happy with how things are going. Yeah, and so those former with transient, currently settled aging hippies, are interested in having organically grown local marijuana. And I think a lot of other people are too. We're not here to fight government. Government is saying all the things we want to hear. They're, they're, they say they're going to allow everything that we want to do. We just want to make sure our specific maybe differences coming from a co-op are allowed. So we just want to nudge it in the right direction. We're not here to, to, to be a advocates or demonstrators against something i we like the way the law is written we just want them to follow through on what the the details of what they said they're going to do so that's all interesting and that's where things are now in bc but we were interested in figuring out what does that look like in a place like atlantic canada that doesn't have an established industry even if it is legal or semi-legal right yeah and what did that look like here well, uh, Rebecca managed to find Fred Bergman. Yeah, Fred Bergman is a senior policy analyst with the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council, APEC. Um, and, I mean, we're not the only people who were wondering about this issue. Um, his organization has spent quite a lot of time looking into the possible benefits and the market for cannabis in Atlantic Canada. Well, how big is the market here? It's pretty substantial. Between about 1970, I'm going to start there because that's when the growth started to take off. Uh, it, it looks like in 1970 they, they forecast about 150 metric tons nationally uh, in terms of cannabis sales. And then by 2015, that number had grown to about 700 um, uh, metric tons. And that's in line with the PBO study uh, because one of the estimates from the PBO study for 2018 I think, uh, suggested sales nationally of about 755 metric tons. Uh, and a metric ton's equivalent to 1,000 kilograms, so you can easily convert that to, to grams or kilograms, however you want to look at the number. And, and that's kind of the base. The 750, uh, 755 metric tons would have been kind of the starting point for, starting point for our estimates. So, you know, you could look at that and say, okay, nationally, this is what the PBO says. And you could look at the population 19 plus, because most of the Atlantic provinces, that's kind of been the legal age, and that's what we had predicted back in, uh, back in the winter, which was a lucky guess, but a, an educated guess. Uh, and, then, and then for each province, you could figure out the per capita share of that 755 metric tons. Now, not to speak out of turn, but 
a wild guess that Newfoundland and Labrador's share would be about 1.47%, uh, based on its share of population age 19 plus as of July 1, 2017. I think you could soon get a rough idea what the grams uh, sales and dollar value sales may be in Newfoundland and Labrador based on that one point estimate. I did the math on the back of a proverbial envelope or napkin here using his numbers. So the total national market using $10 a gram, which is sort of what they're thinking the price would be uh, for the sake of simplicity. So the total national market is around $7.5 billion. That's B for billion. Newfoundland Labrador portion of that would be around 110 million. So yeah, it's substantial, but it's not that huge. Right, but that's just talking about consumption. And uh, when it comes to Atlantic Canada, it's more about the idea of the newness of a potential export industry, right? Yeah. We look more at what's the kind of economic potential of the industry. And, and it's clear it is going to create jobs. It is kind of a new industry. Uh, and therein lies its advantage because it's creating something from nothing, at least in the legal world. Right. It's creating something from nothing. And so when we're looking at this new industry creating new jobs, how many jobs are we actually looking at? Well, like any good policy analyst, Fred was very careful about giving us hard numbers on that one. Uh, We don't have any really solid numbers or indicators, but he used an example from the States to give us an idea. I I can tell you, I looked at one study in Colorado, uh, APEC did, um, where there was, uh, I think, the job creation from the industry uh, including the spin-offs, so that's the direct, indirect, and induced spin-offs, um, uh, was a, upwards of 18,000 jobs. Uh, now, Colorado's population is double the Atlantic region as a whole, uh, and, and their their industry is a bit broader than uh, the Canadian industry will be initially, i.e. they, they uh, right from the get-go, infused products, as an example, are, are legal. Uh, whereas here, the infused products, so that's products that have cannabinoid oils or, or THC or whatever enhanced in them, you know, whether it's the brownies or the cookies or the chocolate bar or whatever the product may be, uh, technically those will not be initially legal in Canada. Now, down the road they may be, but initially I think if you were to look at the Cannabis Act, there's a list of four or five products that are will, will be legal, allowed for sale. So things like cannabis seeds, cannabis oil, uh, dried cannabis, and I can't remember what the other one or two are, but it's very, the definition appears not to include a lot of manufactured type products. Uh, and when I say manufactured, in this case, I'm referring specifically to infused manufactured products. Uh, and so you may not see half the jobs created in uh, in Atlanta, Canada, longer run that, that you see in Colorado, but, you know, you could get upwards of 7,500 jobs created in the region longer run once the industry's fully rolled out. So we're going to have to wait for cannabis-infused fish cakes and toutons and purity syrup before we see the real numbers. Oh. <laughs> However, they're still pretty big. They're still pretty big numbers. But as with anything, it's important to keep in mind that we're not talking about equal distribution across the entire Atlantic region. No, uh, absolutely not. And some provinces are actually way ahead of everybody else and really much better prepared in terms of legalization than, than others. Clearly, 
New Brunswick has kind of set itself apart because it has uh, built cannabis or the marijuana industry as part of its uh, economic development or economic growth strategy. Uh, so it's part of its economic plan. Uh, New Brunswick's in a unique situation because they've already signed three, three uh, supplier agreements or MOUs. Um, I think Newfoundland Labrador just recently, as you're, I'm sure you're well aware, signed uh, its first uh, supplier agreement as well with Canopy Growth. Uh, New Brunswick's in a unique position because it has a, a crown agency called the Research and Productivity Council, uh, RPC for short, um, that does approximately half of the testing of uh, medical uh, and cannabis uh, within Canada. Uh, so it's doing a lot of the testing now of the product within Canada for, for various provinces. So it has a little bit of a, a unique niche there on the research front. Uh, they've also set up a research chair. So the other thing that we need to keep in mind, Fred says, is that we're going to see a, a broad range of players, especially at the outset. And just for our listeners, when Fred says PBO, that's Parliamentary Budget Office. Based on experience in other jurisdictions, the, the legal market's going to grow pretty strong initially. Uh, so it's going to be very robust growth. So, uh, you know, there there are some opportunities. Uh, and that, of course, attracts certain players, right, when, when there are financial opportunities. Um, so you're probably going to get a mix, a mix of experienced players that, that know a bit about uh, a growing product in a greenhouse or, or know a bit about uh, the industry in general, the agricultural industry, and you're going to get others that are that are totally new to it, but they'll hire the expertise that they need, obviously. They'll hire the subject matter experts, so to speak. Uh, you know, so they'll hire a master grower. They'll, they'll hire, you know, people that specialize in horticulture. Uh, and they obviously have to make a significant investments in infrastructure as well. But just because of our climate, just because of our climate here, I mean, that's pretty obvious. So interestingly, he's talking about what would be needed for a player to be able to get onto the scene and start successfully producing marijuana in this context. And he's talking about horticulturalists. He's talking about bringing in resources. This is not sounding like the mom and pop uh, operations, the co-op sense that Todd was so excited about in our first interview. And I do wonder um, if we're going to see opportunities for those smaller guys. I was as I was listening to the interviews. I was thinking the same thing, especially in a place like Kingfield and Labrador, mm-hmm. where we already lack that kind of expertise to grow food. Never mind recreational medicinal marijuana. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of that expertise exists in the provi- province, and how much of it can you actually bring in. How how much of it can be mobilized without just vast amounts of capital to get started? And as he talks about it, those markets, the medicinal market and the recreational market. Mm-hmm can be quite different. The one good thing is that all of it is going to happen in stages, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in many ways, it has to because this regulatory environment is going to be incredibly strict. It has to be. Well, I think there's other reasons why they maybe want to, you know, first you want to make sure your controls are in place to control the industry. And as you move to a broader envelope, although that may sound better from an economic impact perspective, i.e. if we lay all every product under the sun, we can get a much bigger bang for our buck. Yes, that's true. But guess what? You now have a broader industry to control. And what does that create behind it? Uh, Quite a regulatory environment. So the minute that product leaves the grower, then it has to grow, go to the manufacturing plant. And guess what you have to do at the manufacturing plant? <laughs> you need controls in place. 
so when you look at a lot of the other studies, there's huge investments in IT tracking because you have to track this industry. That's part of the control process. There's huge investments in security. You know, we have to maintain video of everybody and their activities for how many years? You have to store that video in case there's any illicit issues going on. Uh, everybody needs a special ID. Uh, uh, all the all the people participating in the industry need special licensing, um, so on and so forth. So uh, there's an upside and a downside to broadening the industry. The upside is bigger economic impact, but you also have to have the controls in place. So maybe that's why they're doing it. In a, it's possible they're going to do it in a staged fashion, i.e., let's get the controls in place to get the product legalized by July 1. Maybe down the road we'll start to open up the industry a little broader. It's no different than Newfoundland and Labrador saying, okay, initially we're going to oversee all online sales uh, from within the province. So that's the domestic sales that take place within the province. They're going to control that part of the distribution. But I think when you read the press release carefully, there's a hint that down the road they may open up some of the online sales to the private sector. Down the road. <laughs> so once again, it's kind of taking that little baby steps on the control process. And I, and I see the logic in that. I have a feeling that the most excited people about this whole thing are the governments. I don't know. You don't hang out with very many potheads, do you? <laughs> no, apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that said, I mean, actually, you'll hear from users. They don't know exactly how this is going to pan out, and they're not universally sure that this is a good idea either, which is quite interesting. Um, but when you get back to the governments, I mean, why wouldn't they be excited? This is a brand new tax opportunity. Hmm. For Nova Scotia, I think we came up with an estimate of 80, uh, a range of 89 million to 100 million in um, potential revenues from cannabis sales just in Nova Scotia, as an example, um, including uh, health services tax. So that would be a combination of uh, their, uh, the province's share of uh, federal excise tax, uh, which is, I think, 75%, which is really a federal provincial excise tax. Um, it would be HST. Uh, obviously, if Nova Scotia is selling uh, the product through the Nova Scotia Liquor Corporation or, or, or uh, new buildings under that corporation, um, those uh, there's possibility of being a, what's called a margin on that as well, like a gross margin or a net margin, a profit margin effectively, which is a, not quite a pure tax, but it's a form of revenue. Revenue, it's a revenue based to government. So the 89 to 100 million would be kind of a catch all provincial government number only. So it may include margin, it may include sales tax, and it may include excise tax. It's a combination of it. I think it, the only estimate we did in total uh, for Atlantic Canada is um, we came up with a range uh, for total sales in the region. So we pegged the total value of sales. Uh, in the 350 to 400 million dollar range uh, for cannabis sales. Is that a lot? I don't know. He also pointed out that um, there are essentially two markets, right? There is the recreational market and the medicinal market. Yeah, and he also pointed out that uh, with aging demographics, especially in rural areas, you could see an impact on the medicinal versus recreational use split. And he also uh, said that there's, there really are opportunities for the industry to grow outside of urban centers in those rural places. The rural aspect, clearly there are, 
if you do a search around, you'll start to see that there are some companies in Newfoundland and Labrador outside of the one that's got the supply agreement that are pursuing licenses. Some of them are clearly probably more focused on the medicinal product, and not all of them are located in urban areas. I saw four or five just glancing quickly that are that are trying to set up shop in Newfoundland and Labrador, in Argentia, I think, uh, in a place near Placentia Bay. I think it was uh, it was Fairhaven. So, you know, there and there was another company trying to set up near St. George as well. Uh, so there are other businesses trying to supply the, the greater industry. And even beyond growing the product, growing is one aspect, but there's, there's, there, there are other companies out there that are involved in um, R&D, including some operations in Newfoundland and Labrador. So that is a perfect transition to our next story. It sure is. Bond Rideout Jr. is an entrepreneur who has repurposed an old fish plant in Fairhaven, which is a very small outport community in Newfoundland and Labrador. And our own Rebecca Nolan tracked him down. Yeah, so I met up with Bond a few weeks ago to talk with him about um, his business, Metacorp, which is set up to be one of the first marijuana production plants in Newfoundland. Um, And... And we automatically started talking um, about this deep connection to Outport Newfoundland that he has. My name is Bon Rideout. I'm from Blaketown, uh, which is an Outport community roughly about 45 minutes from St. John's. Um, it's a beautiful, picturesque place. I uh, love it there. So we use this old stereotypical line that I hear a lot when people are talking about rural Newfoundland. The whole, we never lock our doors, we leave our keys in the car kind of thing. Yeah, people say that, but that's actually true. I, I don't, I don't lock the doors when I'm in the rural Newfoundland. You don't. Nope. <laughs> See, uh, I mean, I, I grew up in a rural community, and I think uh, maybe some of us would say that that's the way it is, but we always had keys. yeah and i usually thought of it as this kind of quaint shout out to yesteryear that maybe was like nostalgic selective memory type of thing but it turns out that there may be some truth to it in bond's case and we'll get into that a little bit later um but the first thing you guys need to know about bond is that he's a businessman through and through and he's had a ton of jobs throughout his life Well, every job I have, I guess I still had have because I, you know, when you're doing things you love, you uh, you don't uh, you don't stop them. I guess one 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 of the uh, I believe it was in the Globe Mail that uh, you know I sold tame pet rocks when I was a kid and all that kind of stuff. Like uh, you know my pet food my pet food company. uh, You know I developed that one back in I believe it was 2013, 2014, whenever it was. Now you know I've I've always had uh, smaller companies so. You know, like my antiques business is, uh, I call that my fun business. And, you know, and I got Atlantis and, uh, you know, now I know Metacorp. So it's, uh, I have four companies and all. They, they, they keep me out of trouble or put me into it one or the other, whichever way it works, whichever way you want to look at it. <laughs> so he has a lot of business credentials going for him and business savvy. Um, and he really credits one major thing, um, which is watching his dad run a fishing enterprise. My father was a fisherman. I fished uh, you know, I used to go out and boat with him for, you know, ever since I could walk type thing. So I, I loved it on the water. But Bond kind of knew that he was made more for the business side of things instead of fishing. So he wouldn't necessarily be the guy on the boat pulling the fish out of the water. But he'd be the one that processed and sold the fish and made sure everyone was getting the most out of their fish. Okay, but how did he end up with a fish plant? It's kind of a weird story. <laughs> As I guess buying a fish plant is nowadays. Um 
it kind of happened by accident. He was finishing up his master's degree in classics at Munn. In he, classics? In classics. Yeah, I didn't see this plot twist coming. No. <laughs> no. I was actually talking with him, and he was talking about the importance of an arts degree in running business and everything. It's all interconnected. Oh, awesome. Okay. <laughs> I'm right on board with this. Yep. So he was going to print out his classics thesis, um, and so he went down to Fairhaven to buy a printer. So it was one of those days where I guess not everyone had a printer just sticking around in their house. Um, and so we went to buy this printer. And when he was in Fairhaven, he came across this abandoned fish plant. And it had been opened in 2001, and its original owner had recently died. And so his family was kind of looking for someone to take on this challenge. Mm. I subsequently purchased off his family when I, uh, when I went out to buy a printer to uh, publish my master's thesis. <laughs> so uh, the joke is I went to buy a printer and bought a fish plant. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's where that one came from. I bought books I didn't mean to buy. I bought all <laughs> sorts of things I didn't mean to buy, but I, I think I would draw a line at a fish plant. This is a guy who should never go grocery shopping on an empty stomach. On an empty stomach. No, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> so he has this fish plant kind of out of the blue, and he was planning on taking it over and um, eventually taking over his father's fishing enterprise and using this fish plant as a place to process and export fish. But um, that didn't really work out. His dad ended up selling his fishing license the year right after Bond bought this plant. And so Bond kind of had to like reassess what he was going to do. So he got creative. Um, this plant had one really great thing going for it at the time. Um, it was designed as a smoker. So you mean like for smoking fish? Yes. <laughs> Insert marijuana pun. Um, so what I went and did is uh, I got uh, rainbow trout, Atlantic salmon, wall arctic char and those were my three flagship products and uh, we uh, well we smoked the product and we got a kosher license which enabled us to go into the united states which has traditionally been our largest trade partner in seafood anyway and back then uh, the dollar was extremely high or their dollar was extremely high so it was a win-win all the way around and it was a great setup, however, in 2009-2010, when uh, the economic crisis happened in the United States, um, that's when changes had to be made. So he adjusted, and he started outsourcing the plant to other seed food companies. And then in 2013, he was in the bottom of his grandmother's basement looking for antiques, because he also runs an antiquing business. <laughs> um, multi-talented. Very multi-talented. So picture this. He's in the bottom of his grandma's basement. There's dust everywhere. Poking around through the, uh, the drawers and... Looking for boxes. The <laughs> um, maybe he has a watch. I don't know. I'm just like Indiana Jonesing this. Um, and so he gets a call, a really weird call from Health Canada on his phone. Mm. Um, and he actually remembers the exact date because who wouldn't remember the exact date that you get a random phone call from Health Canada? And it was. They called me on, uh, I believe it was June 5th, uh, 2013. And uh, that's where this whole thing kind of started. Um, and they basically said, hey, we're getting a lot of applications for growing marijuana in Newfoundland. And we noticed that you have this empty fish plant and there's nothing really going on in it. Would that be something that you're interested in? So why him? It seems pretty out of the blue. There are other fish plants. <laughs> there are other buildings. Buildings. <laughs> yeah, this is weird. I don't know. But he says it's kind of weird, too. And he was kind of thrown off by it. Um 
He doesn't really have a definitive answer of why him to be chosen by the gods of Health Canada. <laughs> um, but I guess that they somehow heard that he had this big empty building in rural Newfoundland and it was clean and it was secure. Um, and it was infinitely better than a lot of the other calls they were getting. And so they're like, uh, maybe we should reach out to this guy. I, I go back to the bricks and mortar and people needed, um, well, well, back then the application required that you need to have a, like a steel building, uh, you know, it, it need to be like, you, you couldn't grow it in your mom's basement basically. Right. So you had to put legitimacy around the business and the plant itself. And at first he said no, because it seems like a really weird call. So naturally you would say no. Like I say, I, I originally said no to him and uh, or just kind of laughed it off, actually, because it kind of caught me off guard. You don't really get those calls very often. So, so what changed his mind? Well, actually, it was the police. <laughs> what? Really? Uh, why police? I mean, the police have been working for decades to kind of weed out the guys like him. Boy, did you make a <laughs> I kind of see where they're coming from. Uh, it's better to have this than the alternative. I guess. Um, yeah, and so Bond thought about it for a little bit. And? And um, I said, yeah, well, you know the hell with it. Was just where, to, where to chat with the police. So I, um, I went down to East White Hills, uh, during St. John's, and what I thought was going to be a 10-minute conversation of turn around, you're going the wrong way, was uh, basically a two-and-a-half-hour seminar on why I should be involved in this industry. So it, it was really good, and it was actually the police that gave me my first application. <laughs> okay. Well, well. So they were very supportive of Bond growing marijuana in his fish plant. <laughs> uh, that sentence you just said, the police were very supportive of Bond growing marijuana in his fish plant. Taken together by aliens. That makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> I know. And that's what makes the story so great, right? Um, and so after he got the go-ahead from the police, Bond kind of set out on this journey to learn as much as he could about marijuana. Because another thing you guys need to know about Bond is he goes full in on everything. He's the one who's pushing getting all of this clearance to be able to do medical research. He's done a bunch of research. Um, he learned that Newfoundland, that pot grown in Newfoundland has the most flavonoids, which I don't know what they are, but he was really excited about it, so it must be good. So he's putting that classics research background to good use. This is a guy with a research perspective. Exactly, and he's done a lot of research. There were binders everywhere. So he really seems to have tackled pretty much every angle from a business perspective. Yeah, and his business brain really started to go into overdrive. He had all those years of experience running a fish plant and a dog food making business and an antique <laughs> business, a pet rock business. Um, and it really, that experience really helped him get off the ground. Um, but he had one really big important hurdle when it came to this particular business. He'd never smoked pot before. So how did he get around this? I mean, you're kind of missing a big part of the business if you don't even know what kind of product you're making. I mean, he definitely tried all those kinds of smoked fish. I mean, he probably did. <laughs> but I asked him that question. That was really on the forefront of my mind. People who go into growing and selling marijuana usually have some sort of experience mm. in that world. Mm -hmm. um, but I loved his answer. He said basically... I don't need to smoke marijuana to run this business because I already have a ton of friends who are absolute experts right. in it. 
you know, it's just like when you um, when you start a business, you may not be the one to know how to build the, the walls or you may not be able to one to, you know, produce the uh, filter the fish the best, uh, but uh, you bring the people around you that have those skill sets. So um, in particular, I have uh, some interesting friends out of the United States that uh, are really good uh, growers. Um, they're great connoisseurs of it, um, you know, and uh, I, I guess there'll be an argument about what weed is best and what, uh, you know, for the recreational component. But, um, you know, I, I remember uh, one of my guys, he flew up and he met with my team way back when. And he went and uh, actually had marijuana on the street down here. And he went down to George and he, he bought a little bit of marijuana and he was supposed to be given the best. And when he came back, I said, well, what was it like? And he said, uh, there's better weed in my grandmother's basement than what's here. He said, if that's the best. So for you non-Newfoundlanders listening, um, George Street is our party street here in St. John's. And so if you're getting the best marijuana, I guess that's where you might get it. But it also kind of brings the illicit market part into it, right? I mean, Bond's friend going and buying marijuana was an illegal activity. Mm. And so there's a lot of intersections of legal and illegal in marijuana production. I mean, we touched on that already a little. Um, you have the police trying to help legal businesses get up off the ground, but on some level, you have to include and acknowledge the illegal market to be able to plan your business. Right. Um, and Bon was telling me that there's one major issue where this illegal market has to come in consideration, um, and that's price. Mm. And it's all hinged on the point of looking at it through the lens of an illicit market. So right now, marijuana on the street is worth, we'll say, $10 a gram for argument's sake. So... That's right now where it's a controlled substance. What happens when it becomes legal? What happens when we have X number of companies competing for the same market share? Uh, naturally, supply and demand. The price is going to go down. So how do we compete against that? And so what Bond decided to do is he wants to mimic kind of what he did with his fish plant and add value to the marijuana that he's growing. So smoke macros, smoke salmon, smoke pot? <laughs> exactly, but not quite. There are a few things that he's doing. Um, he's making sure to utilize all parts of the plant, not just the traditional bud, um, because apparently you can use like the roots and the stems of the plant too, um, and find less traditional uses for it. Um, for example, he's looking into a hemp protein supplement that he's looking into selling. I don't know, all of this is really up in the air for me just because I don't know that much about the marijuana plant, but mm. it sounds legit. Well, and it actually sort of sounds like what you hear about in terms of discussions about making sure that fisheries are profitable as well. Um, you can't just uh, you can't just take the, uh, the fillets or the fillets in the cod and call it a day. Uh, if you want to make real money, that's when you start looking at ways to use parts of the cod for nutraceutical products or in the pharmacy industry, or whatever. And, and you're seeing that across the province, so it makes sense. You're going to utilize as much of your product as you possibly can. Yeah, and a major thing that he's doing is reducing the actual production cost of marijuana. Um, and this is where being in a rural setting really helps his business, because the government is trying to promote business in these rural areas. You know, normally the municipalities want to foster business growth and municipal taxes are a lot less it's a lot strenuous yes you do have the shipping issues and all that kind of stuff but at the end of the day there is a huge case for rural newfoundland uh, for newfoundland in general but for in in particular rural newfoundland because it can be done so much easier and it's easier in a couple different ways 
One, like you said, taxes are lower in this business. Um, but the other major thing is the remoteness of his rural location is a huge benefit in terms of security. Okay, so this is where the whole we never lock our doors anecdote comes into play. Yep. Um, and that's what I like to call outport grandma security. Ooh, growing up in Croatia, I think I know exactly what that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically saying that people in the town know and keep an eye on each other. So you've got to remember that Fairhaven is super tiny. I looked it up on Stats Canada, and as of 2016, it had 86 people. Right. So you basically know everybody in town, and it's really easy for them to tell if somebody is hanging around the plant who shouldn't be there because they won't recognize mm. the truck. Bond actually told me that. He's like, we all look and we know the trucks, and if there's a truck down there by the plant that we don't know, we tell somebody. Right. Um, and so apparently this was a huge deal when it came to his security clearance ranking with Health Canada. For instance, with my marijuana plant, uh, you know, in Omedicorp, if we were to uh, have that in the city, uh, we would uh, have a lot more issues on our application. Uh, we wouldn't be uh, able to have a level 10, which we have, which is the highest level you can ascertain. Um, you know, the, uh, the we would only be at a level 7 or 6, whatever it was. And so rural Newfoundland really helped us in that benefit. I love how in this case, being remote and away from urban areas is actually a benefit to a rural business. We've spoken to a lot of business owners over the past season where uh, despite the many benefits of working in rural places, the isolation really did uh, present pretty major challenges to the work they were trying to do. Yeah, I just got four episodes ago when we talked about fashion industry I and mean, yep. just shipping your product out of rural region. Yeah can be a problem yeah and i think the major reason that fairhaven has been able to overcome a lot of those hurdles is because of how dedicated the people in the community are to this business succeeding there's so much more interest in rural newfoundland especially you know in, in places that would be saying quote unquote a little bit economically depressed or where people would have to leave and go uh you know for more of an hour drive to go to work because it's right in their backyard so the fact that Bond is creating these jobs for people that they don't have to commute to or up and end and move and leave their homes is a really big deal for the community. Yeah, no doubt. And creating jobs in Outport, Newfoundland and Labrador really is an important thing. Um, we had the collapse of the fishery in 1992, and that really affected the main industry in a lot of those communities. And we really haven't seen, even with new fisheries coming about, we really haven't seen anything that's been able to step in and create the extent of sustainable jobs that were lost during that time period. Yeah, and Bond talked a lot about that. You know, back in, in the years ago, it was the fish plant. Well, the, the fish plant was the reason why Community X existed, and the workers worked there, and that's where they made their money and, and everything else. And now there's a, a change, and as things change, well, you know, we see an exodus from rural Newfoundland. We see people moving more to the, you know, the suburbs of St. John's, you know, in Paradise and CBS, um, more so than outport or going away sadly right you know so that's that's just the way it works so bond has this hope that um this marijuana plant will literally and metaphorically get to kind of slip into the space where the fish plants used to be um they could become the industry in these rural communities so that they have an economic kind of light at the end of the tunnel mm. Now, uh, well, for Fairhaven, uh, there's a lot of um, a buzz uh, about this project. And what it means is, like, we're bringing in 70, roughly 70 workers that we're going to need 
to get this project going and on a go forward basis. So naturally, being from Outport, Newfoundland, where am I going to look first for my workers? Right, is right next door. And quite frankly, that's where my loyalties are. So I want to keep the money here. I want to keep wages here. I want to increase wages for rural Newfoundland. Um, you know, they say the role of, uh, of an entrepreneur is to cr create sustainable jobs for workers. And I don't mean workers whereby they can eke out a, an existence and make ends meet, but, you know, high paying jobs. You know, uh, if, if you're making $75,000, $80,000 a year, you can have a quality of life that you deserve. And that's a huge promise uh, that he's making to the people in Fairhaven. Yeah, it's really big. But I actually think that he's starting to be in a position where he can keep it. Mm. Um, he's gotten approval from Health Canada. He's developed an export strategy, which, as he pointed out, is the number one thing that you need to succeed in any business in Newfoundland. Um, and he's pointing out how we're so close to the European market. He's really putting that classics research thing in to use. Um, He's devoted a lot of money into creating a research facility in Fairhaven. Mm -hmm. um, he wants to look at medicinal uses. Um, he's really in this 100%. And Bond has a lot of hope for the role that marijuana production could play in the economy of rural Newfoundland in the future. He thinks that Newfoundland has the potential to become a world leader in this industry. This, is, this if done right, can be an extremely lucrative industry for Newfoundland and Labrador even to rival that of the fishery and even oil, if done properly. Uh, I don't think they'll do that. <laughs> but uh, uh, the, the tax base that can be made off of pharmaceuticals, off of recreation, the recreational side of the cannabis plant is astronomical. Hmm. That's um, quite a statement. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it kind of seems too good to be true. Um, and at this point, it's all theoretical. Um, the government pushed back legalization again until September, and we really don't know where recreational stands. Um, and since Bond and I spoke, new places have put in licenses to grow marijuana. But all in all, I like the idea of him trying to breathe life into this old building and making an economic center for the community again. Hmm. And there you have it, from a plant that has been used for thousands of years, to a demonized gateway drug, to a legalized recreational and medicinal substance, I still have a feeling that nobody really knows what they're doing in terms of how is all this going to roll out. How's it going to roll out? <laughs> oh, man. Was that an unintentional That was one? a totally unintentional He part. keeps on doing it. I love it. I bet he's doing it subconsciously. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. Uh, it's all a bit sketchy at this point. Um, there does seem to be the potential for cannabis to become, at least in some places, a piece of the economic puzzle, if not exactly a driver of development. And for some places like southeastern BC that you guys were talking about, um, cannabis cultivation seems to be part of the cultural and economic fabric already so it kind of seems like it can naturally blossom yeah no doubt uh it's certainly true in in a place like nelson it's already a significant part of the economy albeit an underground economy but things are going to change and uh you know who's to say that the uh the benefits of the legal industry are are even as great as the illegal industry we're going to have to see how that pans out yeah, I have to admit I'm still puzzled and someone, I don't know, dismayed by this whole marijuana thing. How come? Well, I'm not really surprised that everything's unclear at the moment. I'm just puzzled that this has ever become a political issue. 
honestly, I mean, we partially fought last federal election on marijuana legalization. I just don't understand how this became such an enormous public issue at the time of climate change, aging population, unprecedented movement of people around the world, serious food security issues we need to solve, especially here, opioid crisis. I mean, you name it, and yet a vast number of Canadians were driven to the polls by the desire to get <laughs> legally stoned. And now we are contemplating turning fish processing plants, you know, food, into marijuana grow-ups. I, I just don't get it. I you honestly know, don't get it. You know what? I have actually said similar things before, and I've had chats with people who are sort of really pro-marijuana legalization. Oh, I'm totally on board with that. However... There are other things, too. There's the fact that it is criminalized. It's a criminal activity right now. And you really do see horrible impacts um, on people's lives in terms of, you know, being caught with relatively small amounts of marijuana at a young age and then really having their life decisions uh, compromised by those those mistakes. And the other issue there is that it's overwhelmingly going to be people from from other types of disadvantaged groups who are going to be the most severely impacted by that so the fact is it seems like this kind of funny thing you know we can play some cypress hill and have a laugh and make some weed weed puns but the it it has the potential to really impact people's lives oh no absolutely i'm just totally stunned that this is the issue that mobilized canadians (laughs) and think like man there's so much other stuff going on (laughs) No doubt, no doubt. Alrighty, shall we end this episode? Yeah, let's do it. We looked at some of the opportunities and issues arising from the eventual legalization of cannabis. Yeah, we spoke with Todd Vary in Caslow, BC, and Fred Bergman, a senior policy analyst with the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council. And we talked to Bond Rideout Jr. right here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Rural Roots is a partnership between the Harris Center at Memorial University, the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and the Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership. We record the show at the CHMR Campus Radio at Memorial University of Newfoundland, right here in St. John's. You can hear Rural Roots through our website, ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. Or you can find us on your favorite podcasting app. You can also hear us on community and campus radio stations across the country. If you'd like your station to carry Rural Roots, just let them know and they can find us on the campus and community radio program exchange or they can get in touch with us directly. All right. Well, that's another episode. I am Rebecca Cahoe. And I'm Rebecca Nolan. And I'm Brian Fierce. Thanks for listening. <laughs>